Well, so we're entering here with Psalms 132 through 134, our final section of the Songs of Ascents. So our final section of the Songs of Ascents, and so I just wanted to kind of remind us of what that was. So what it was is as the pilgrims would go to Jerusalem, you know, for these different feasts, as they went up to Jerusalem, since it was up uh, topographically from where they were, they would sing these different songs. But I wanted to remind you as believers, no matter how it feels right now, your story, your life is a Song of Ascent. Okay, and as I was thinking about that, even during worship, I was, I was reminded about something that's important for pilots. Now, I'm not a pilot, so anything I say right now, you can um, ask Bob for the real deal uh, afterwards, since he is a pilot. But I wanted to be one growing up. I was interested in, in kind of pilots and war and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things as I, as I studied about pilots, it's really, really important for pilots to learn to use their instruments that you need to know how to use your instruments because sometimes the conditions are going to be such you can't use visual cues, so you need to trust your instruments. And so as I've kind of studied some about pilots, I've understood that sometimes pilots can actually be flying upside down and not realize it. And as they're flying upside down, well, then when they, do, when they think that they're ascending as they pull up, they're actually going down. And pilots have crashed into the ground because they thought they were right side up when they were upside down. And, or, you know, they, so, so these things are important, and that actually has great correlation to our lives because sometimes as we just trust our feelings, what we think, we say, well, I'm going down. It, it's, it's going to, so we need to learn to use our instrument panel. And I believe the word of God is our instrument panel. We need something outside of ourselves to say, how is this all going to end? Where's all this thing going? So I would argue that some of us, as we're kind of flying the planes of our lives, if you will, if you'll track with me on this illustration for just a moment, we're flying by feelings and not by instruments. We're flying by how the circumstances feel and maybe it's foggy outside and we just can't make heads or tails of it. We need to move away from our feelings. We need to move away from what's in our visual view and we need to get to our instrument panel, the word of God. I said, what does the word of God say? So the word of God says that every one of us, if you're a born again believer, you're on a song of ascent. You're gonna go meet the Lord. You're gonna be with him present one day. So I wanna encourage you in that. Now, are there going to be, you know, difficulties and hardships and tribulations? Absolutely. The instrument panel already told you that. And so it's important for us to have that settled in our minds, to say, my life as a believer is a song of ascent. That my life as a believer is a story that God is going to work all these things together for the good. That the day is coming when I'm going to see him face to face, and I'm going to live my life in view of that day. I want to encourage you with that as we get started. All right, let's jump into Psalm 132. Uh, there, there's some arguments about what was the original context of this, but you know, there are commentators who believe that Psalm 132 actually corresponds to Solomon bringing the ark into the temple. So we'll kind of talk a little bit about that as we move through, but if it, as, just as way of reminder, David wanted to build the ark. God said, I'm sorry, not build the ark, sorry, wanted to build the temple. God said no. And so Solomon was going to build the temple. And so the context of this psalm and the way that I understand it, and the way many commentators understand it, is it was written as Solomon brought the ark into the temple that he had built. So let's look at verses 1 through 5 to start off with. It says, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, 
Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house, nor go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So you can go back and read it on your own, but the situation was such that, that David really, really wanted to build the temple. He was a man after God's own heart, and, and though he was a mess in many different ways, he still was someone who loved the Lord. And I just kind of want to give you a little aside right here, because if you study David's life carefully, you realize David did a lot of things wrong. David shouldn't have multiplied wives. David was a, a bad dad. But you know what? God also used him, and I think there's a, ca- a correlation or there's an application for us. Don't be a part of cancel culture. Don't be a part of, some. well, somebody did something bad, so I can never listen to anything they said. You shouldn't be sitting here as we teach through most of the Psalms if you believe David should be canceled for all the things he did wrong. Because God doesn't cancel you for the things you've done wrong. You and I have done a lot of things wrong in life, and God says, you know what? I'm going to forgive you on that, and we're going to keep moving forward. So I would encourage you, because and, and why I bring that in is because cancel culture is a really big thing in our, in, our, in our day, and the people who cancel each other, they act like they've never done anything wrong. <laughs> like they don't have any skeletons in their closet. But then also, I, I want to go micro on it too, don't cancel people from your life. People who've wronged you, people who've done this to you, and will, you know, don't, don't use the things of like, well, you know, I just, I, I just can't forget this thing you've done. And I no, 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 no. Choose to forgive. Okay, so that's a little aside, but back to David, okay? So David wanted to, to build this temple, and it's interesting, if you read the story, uh, I think it was the prophet Nathan, maybe, who, who said, yeah, go do it. And then Nathan went home, and, and the Lord said to Nathan, I didn't say for you to tell David to build it. You go back and tell David no, and tell David, I'm going to build a house for him, not he for me. And one of the reasons that God gave for not allowing David to build the temple is because he was a man of war. He was a man who shed a bunch of blood, and, and for, in God's purpose and God's plan, I don't want you to be the one to build the temple. Now, David could have been sullen about that. David could have been bent out of shape about that. David could have said, this was the one hope and desire of my life and I'm not gonna be able to do it, so you know what, I'm just gonna sit around and pout and not do anything. He didn't do that. Instead, here's what David did. He said, well, I can't be the one to build it, but I know someone who can, my son can build it. So I'm gonna prepare and I'm gonna plan and I'm gonna stock resources and I'm gonna get all these things together. So I think this is incredibly vital. This is incredibly important is we, not, we may not be the ones that, that build the temple. It's jazzy. Um, but we can be the ones to prepare a place. Okay, so follow me for just a minute. So let's fast forward to the New Testament for just a minute. Let's think about this. We don't have temples made with hands anymore as believers Instead, let me read for you something that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says this to the Corinthian believers, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? So here's the thing we can do as we think about this. I didn't build this temple. This temple was given to me, but I can actually use this temple of my body as a welcoming place for the Lord. I can invite him to have this place. So, so, so here's the lesson. I would encourage you, I'd encourage me to earnestly seek to be a wonderful dwelling place for God, a temple for him to dwell in. Now it's interesting, 
Almost always when people use 1 Corinthians 6.19, that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, they use it to challenge you when you're eating a cheeseburger and they're eating a salad. Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? What I always like to remind people of, the, the context of this was actually the Corinthians were teaching it was cool to sleep with prostitutes because what you did with your body didn't affect your immaterial self. Okay, so that's a little different context. That looks, does a little different thing there. But here's, but here's the lesson for us, is God somehow wants to dwell within me. And so what I can do is actually prepare my life, what, kind of how I live and how I do things and what I think about and how I interact. I can, I can prepare myself so it's a comfortable place for him to be. And as I was trying to think about this, I thought, well, how is this done in life? Well, think about new parents, Think about new parents, when they know a baby's coming, how they prepare a room for that baby. And they set it up for that baby, and they organize, and they paint, and they decorate. Why? They want that baby to be welcome. Now, the Lord, this season, came as a baby. <laughs> That's not where I'm going with the whole thing. Where I'm going with is, what if we prepared our inner lives with the same intention that new parents prepare a room to bring a baby home? What if we decided and say, I want my inner self, my immaterial self, my spirit and soul to be a place where God wants to come and hang out? Because we, we've understood that. If someone we value comes over to the house, we prep the house, right? We yell at the kids, put your stuff away, or at least put it in your closet. You know, we do all of those things to prepare so it's a welcoming place where this honored guest wants to be. Well, why not do that in our hearts? Why not do that in our minds? Why not say, I want the Lord to dwell as intimately and closely with me as possible, so how about I use my time, effort, and energy to make it a place where he wants to be? I think that's a really cool idea, and I think it's something we should do. And let me give you a, a little context. I'll read a couple of New Testament verses for you. One of them is John 14, 23. Now, in context, this is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He's giving his disciples some kind of final instructions, final teaching. And he says this, John 14, 23, to his disciples, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, we talk about the Holy Spirit dwelling with us, and we can argue and say, well, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, that's how the Father and Son dwell with us. Could be. Right? Or it could be in some way we can't fully understand that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all wish to dwell with us. That each person of the Trinity wants to dwell with us, live with us, fellowship with us. Because isn't that what makes heaven heaven? It's, heaven isn't heaven because of the endless buffets where you don't gain any weight. It, it isn't because, well, I, I'm finally going to get to fly or this or that or whatever dreams we might have of heaven, all those things are aspects, wonders of heaven, but what makes heaven heaven is that fellowship with God, that intimacy with God. So if Jesus wants to dwell with his Father in our immaterial selves, in our spirit, in our soul, why not say, I want to open the door as widely as possible? 
You know, and Sammy opens a door for you, or Kent opens a door for you, or Rick opens a door for you as you come to this church. Hopefully, he, they open it wide, not kind of like, you know, like just looking out, I don't know if I want to let you in. Welcoming. What if, in our hearts and minds, we said, I want to open the door for the Lord as widely as possible. Just welcome him fully in. This also reminds me of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. Paul gives this instruction to the Ephesian believers. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. What is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. So it's interesting. He says, basically, the way you use your mouth, let it be for building people up, not tearing people down. For, for edifying them, not for um, disparaging them. And then the very next verse, he says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Huh. This makes me believe that how we use our words can either grieve or bless the Holy Spirit. That how we speak to people, and not only how we speak to people, but the tone of voice, how much we listen, all of those things, that invites the Holy Spirit to be blessed in us to enjoy life with us. So this is a reminder, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, we are the limiting agent in our relationship with God. We have as close a relationship with him as we want to have. God's not holding out on us. God's not, like, you know, God is infinite. God has infinite resources. And so if we find ourselves being limited in our relationship with the Lord, it's on our side. Now, God is going to take you through some hard times. God is going to take you through some times where he doesn't feel as close. And you say, I'm opening the door as wide as possible. There's no known sin in my life. I'm just really walking with the Lord. What's going on? And in that moment, I would say, well, God's maturing you. Right? God's growing you in that time. God's, God's kind of strengthening your spiritual faith muscles so that you can grow in him. But, but let it be from your heart, from my heart, that we say, I just want to open the door as wide as possible. I want the Holy Spirit to enjoy living a life with me. I want those, those rivers of living water flowing out of my life. So, so I believe that's kind of all that I was getting from verses one through five. This desire of David to, to set it up, to build this temple, and, the, and the, the application for you and I as New Testament believers is to use the temple of our lives in such a way, to structure our lives in such a way that God feels as welcome as possible dwelling with us. So verse six says, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Okay, well, what's, what's going on here? Well, he's talking about the ark here. Okay, so that's going to take, we're not going to go there, but on your own, you can read this story in 1 Samuel. It's a wild story. 1 Samuel, uh, there's this priest named Eli, and he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Okay, not like Phinehas and Ferb, it's a different one. Uh, but, but Hophni and Phinehas, and they are scumbags. They're horrible guys. They're, they're false priests. They, they don't follow the Lord. They're just really, really bad guys. So the, the, the Israelites are going to fight against the Philistines, who were their main enemies at the time. And so Hophni and Phinehas get the bright idea, let's bring the ark out, because, and they use the ark basically as a, as a magical token, as like, we'll use the ark, and the ark will overpower. They were trying to use it as like magic. Well, they go out there, they're defeated by the Philistines, and the, so the Philistines capture the ark, and they take the ark away. 
Well, the Philistines get the bright idea. Hey, why don't we take the ark and we'll put it in our, the, the temple of our false god, Dagon. See what happens. Dagon's the boss, and he's this kind of weird fish-human god. So they go the next day, and they find the statue of Dagon fallen down on his face. And they're like, well, well that's kind of weird. And they dust him off, and they put him back. Well, the next day they come in, I believe it's his head is broken off, and his hands are broken off. And they're like, man, this is, this is not cool. Next, God plagues the um, Philistines with these horrible tumors. I'll let you read the commentators, what they have to say about it. It's not fit for Sunday morning. Um, so it's, they have all this stuff. They're like, we got to get the ark out of here. So they send the ark back to Israel, and then it ends up staying at a person's house for an extended period of time. We read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2. It says, so it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time, and it was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So for 20 years, the ark of the covenant is sitting in a guy's house. It's crazy, because some of you have an unused treadmill sitting in your house. <laughs> and yet this guy had the Ark of the Covenant sitting in his house. Just a wild, wild thing. So this, there's this kind of celebration here in Psalm 132, verse 6, of bringing it back. Verse 7, notice, let us go into his tabernacle, let us worship at his footstool. And so here we have here this excitement, this building excitement of worshiping God. Now the ark is referred to as God's footstool because God would manifest himself somehow, right? There between the cherubim on the ark of the covenant. If you don't remember what the ark of the covenant looks like, you know, watch Raiders of the Lost Ark <laughs> this afternoon. And, and so he would manifest himself. So it was this idea that God's above, but he's manifesting himself. You know, he's using the ark as his footstool. But what I want you to focus on verse seven is this let us, right? Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. There's an excitement there. There's an excitement for, for worshiping the Lord. Now, here's an exhortation for all of us. If we are not excited to worship God, Something is off. Okay, something is off. Now, you might say, Steve, I'm going through really, really, really hard things right now. And you may very well be, right? This, this world is full of tribulation and difficulty and hardship. So I don't want to diminish that at all. But here's something that Paul says in, in Corinthians, I believe 2 Corinthians, he says about sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So I'm not saying that you have to pretend like your sorrow's not there. I don't want you to pretend like the things that you're going through aren't real, but I also want you to remember that at the same time, above these things, above things kind of under the sun, is that God's still on the throne, and that you're going to be a part of the new heaven, the new earth, and that your life is a song of ascent. So, so, so there's, there's this mixture here of, yes, we're going to be sorrowful, but we should still be excited about worshiping God. So if we're not excited about worshiping God, then something is wrong. Maybe we're not trusting God's character. Maybe right now we're just like, oh, I don't believe that God is good because these things are happening to me. Or I, I just don't know if I could trust him. And those are things that need to get sorted. Those are things that need to get worked through. But here's another problem. If we're not excited about worshiping God, it may be that we're worshiping something else. Because human beings are worshipers. We have to. I mean, if you just turn on the TV today and see how many thousands of people are at a football game, 
right? Because we need something to be about. We need something bigger than ourselves to support. We need to be connected to something. That's a form of worship. So here's the deal. We as human beings only have so much energy, right? We only have so much energy, and if that energy is being drained off elsewhere, we don't have that energy to worship God. So if we're worshiping something else, then when it comes time to worship God, we just don't have that. Now here's the most likely false God in all of our lives, ourselves. So if we're spending our time, our effort, our energy to worship self, and please understand, we're all greedy gods. Because the more that we serve ourselves, the more we want. (laughs) It's infinite. And so what happens, it drains off our energy to worship. So that's the bad news. But let me give you the good news. The good news is, if you and I will turn from ourselves and will fix our eyes on the Lord as our object of worship, we will receive a supernatural supply of energy with which we can worship him. So if you and I turn away from ourselves, because please don't leave here and say, well, Steve just wants me to turn my own personal energies back to the Lord, and I'm already tired, and I'm working hard, and my kids are wild, and all of these things. I understand that. I'm not asking for that. I'm not asking that for you or for me. And please understand, all this exhortation that I give to you guys, I hope you know I'm exhorting myself in this. I'm exhorting you here. You and I, let us turn away from ourselves. Let's turn away from worshiping ourselves. Say, let's say to the Lord, Lord, I need the energy that you can give to worship you. I need supernatural energy. You know what God will do? He'll supply that. He'll supply that energy. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And the next verse says he was speaking of the Holy Spirit who was not yet given. If you and I go before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm tired of worshiping myself. It's a dead end street. It gets me more tired than anything. I just want to worship you, but I need your energy to do that. He's going to give it to you. If you say to the Lord, Lord, I'm thirsty. I want rivers of living water flowing out of me. I want to be a refreshment to those around me. Had a kind of funny experience related to this. I was walking over to um, Albertsons before service to go get some more decaf K-cups for the weird people that do decaf, (laughs) okay? But God loves you, okay? So I was walking over there And kind of foolishly, I wasn't kind of walking on a path. I was just going between cars. Well, here comes this big work truck, like right toward me. And I think, well, I'm about to go see Jesus today. (laughs) And then he turns and parks. He was just kind of taking a wide way to the parking. Well, he gets out, and I could see that he wants to talk to me. And so, like, but he's, like, real smiley, and he's laughing with me. He's like, oh, you thought I was going to run you over, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And he was just, like, a refreshing guy. It just, I don't know, there was something about him. And he was talking about how he lives in New Mexico now, but he, he used to live in Midland, and we should still lived in Midland. But it was just all joyful. It wasn't like, oh, I don't live in Midland anymore. It was, man, I love Midland, but it was just real joyful guy. And it was, it was we talked for maybe two minutes, and it was incredible refreshment to me. And then as I, I walked and, and got the decaf K-cups, um, and then when I walked back, I passed by his truck. He was still in the store, and I saw that there was a Bible sitting up on the top of his dash. I thought, well, that makes sense. You know, this is a guy who knows the Lord, and he takes this opportunity to just talk with me, to refresh me, just because I would argue it's just the overflow of his life. And, and so you and I can be that. We don't know what impact we're going to have 
if, if we just say, Lord, I need your energy to walk in the good works you prepared for me today. We don't know what kind of impact that's gonna have on others, but it's, it's possible if we ask the Lord for that. All right, let's look now at verses eight through 10 here in Psalm 132. It says, arise, O Lord, to your resting place and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Okay, so what we have here really are, are four prayers here, or four sections of prayer, and I'll just read them for you quickly. And so um, this may be tied into Solomon's prayer at the temple dedication, but the first thing we see here is this um, Solomon, right, I believe is the author of this, Solomon's asking God to dwell in his temple, right? So he's asking God, God, would you come dwell in your temple? Well, that's a great prayer for us if we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, is just pray, God, would you dwell in your temple? Well, would you just be here with me, in fellowship with me, would you live with me? Okay, that, so we can ask, pray that. Pr- second prayer here, asking that the spiritual leaders be righteous. Notice, let your cl- priest be clothed in righteousness and let your sh- sa- saints shout for joy. So pray for that. Please pray for the elders of this church. Pray for the ministry team leaders of this church. Pray that we would be righteous. We're just people. And so pray for that. Pray for the spiritual leaders around the world. Third thing here, he's asking that believers would be joyful. Notice, and let your saints shout for joy. Yeah, that's incredible. If, for us as Christians, if we can be joyful, hopeful people, we're gonna be different. This world is not a hopeful, joyful place. This world needs to turn to, you know, a drunkenness or drugs or things like that to try to have like false joy, false hope. But we can be joyful, hopeful people as believers. So pray for that. And the fourth thing we see here in verse 10, for your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. So this may be one of two things. It may be Solomon asking for God's blessing on himself because the, the king was anointed right? Or he could be referring to the ultimate anointed, the Messiah. And so it may be that. So he's asking for God's blessings either on himself or on the Messiah. We're not exactly sure, but either way, those are good blessings, right? Asking God, would you bless me? Would you use me? Also, um, you know, asking God, hey, would, would Jesus be glorified in this situation? Would he be blessed in this situation? Would you do that? These are just really, really great things to pray for. All right, let's look at verses 11 and 12 now says, the Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If, you keep, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. Okay, so this is really a reference to the Davidic covenant. And it's interesting, within the Davidic covenant, there's an unconditional section and a conditional section. So the unconditional is that the Messiah would come through David's line. That God would set up his Messiah through David's line. The line of the tribe of Judah would come through David's line. And we know that. It's happened. But there's also a conditional aspect in that the sons of David would rule as long as they were obedient. Please notice that. Right? He says, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. Unfortunately, they didn't do that. The descendants of David, 
didn't follow this through. And so because of that, their, their line was cut off, but the Messiah wasn't. So the Messiah kept on. Now, I think this is important for us to understand, too, that when it comes to us as believers, there's an unconditional part and a conditional part. The moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were, you're unconditionally sealed until the day of redemption. You, the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit and you're going to heaven. That's why I can say to every believer here, your, your story is a song of ascent because you're going to heaven one day. But there's also a conditional aspect. We realize there's something called rewards. We realize that our faithfulness, our obedience to walk out those good works that God has prepared beforehand will determine our rewards at the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. So we can rest, and this is how I like to do it. I don't have it on my, on my notes or a slide, but I would encourage you guys to go back and look through Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And, and because Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says you've been saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so what you have is salvation is by faith. That's the unconditional. The moment you place your faith, you're, you're in. But Ephesians 2.10 says, and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should work, that, uh, that he created beforehand, that we should walk in them. That's the conditional part, right? That, that we as believers have a choice. How are we gonna live? Are we gonna obey? Are we gonna not obey? And then are we going to be rewarded or suffer loss due to that? So this is great stuff for us because it tells me, man, I can rest every day in my salvation. I'm not working for my salvation. I'm working from my salvation. I, I've, I've been saved by Christ, his finished work on the cross, so I don't have to serve God trying to be good enough for heaven. Instead, I can live my life joyfully, excitedly, just simply seeking to obey him and to live out those good works. See, Christians who don't trust that they're going to heaven because of Christ's finished work, they, they live these kind of, um, I would say, strenuous, maybe even miserable Christian lives because they're always like, I'm on, the, I'm on the wire. Am I gonna make it to heaven? Am I not gonna make it to heaven? Let me just put you at ease. If you're a born-again believer, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He said, tell telestai, it means paid in full. So now, serve God with freedom. In the spirit, you don't, you're not working for your salvation. You're working from your salvation. It's an exciting thing to think about. All right, verses 13 through 16. It says, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will, clothe, I will also clothe her priest with salvation and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. So this, is, this really looks like God's answer to Solomon's prayer. The prayers that he prayed there in eight through 10 and uh, 11 through 12 and then all of a sudden the, the Lord responds and this is what the Lord has said. This is what the Lord has chosen. And so I don't wanna go into all of that there. What I just wanna bring out is that God does answer prayer. Okay? But, but he answers prayer that's according to his will. And so the key for us is to be so familiar with our instrument panel, to know the kind of things that God wants done in this world, and then to pray those things. And then also, I've been thinking a lot about this week about a, a quote from Jim Elliott, who was martyred for his faith. And he said this, um, God always gives his best 
to those who leave the choice to him. God always gives his best to those who leave the choice to him. So the key for us in prayer is not trying to like just figure out the exact way to say it and the exact things to, to ask for and this certain formula and this certain plan and I'll read the prayer of Jabez and I'll do this kind of thing and that kind of thing. No, no, ours is to say, Lord, whatever you want in this situation is what I want. So would you intervene in this situation? is not to give God a list of things as if we're the master and he's our servant. But instead, Lord, I am the servant. You're the master. Whatever you want done in this situation, would you please do that? And I want to be available if you want to use me in this situation. If you don't, just really, I would encourage you to be more open-ended with your prayers. Is to, to, to really give him that freedom to work as he wants to. All right, verses 17 and 18 says, I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Okay, so I believe that these really refer to the prophecies of the Messiah. I believe my anointed here um, speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the fulfillment here in verses 17 and 18 really speak about the millennial kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth, uh, things that we see about at the end of Revelation, you know, they're in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22. And then I would encourage you always to go back to Psalm chapter 2. You know, whenever you feel yourself anxious and frustrated about world events and how things are moving on the world stage, is to remind yourself, God's not freaked out. God is going to set up his, his Messiah when the time comes. All right, let's move on to Psalm 133. And this is a Psalm of David here. And a very short psalm, and so I'm just going to read it. We're going to talk about it. But, but the main thing to here is really the beauty of the unity of believers, the beauty of the unity of believers. So it says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And so it's this, this picture of refreshment. Now for us, we're kind of, we're, we're separate from this. So we're like, man, oil running down the head and the beard and down your clothes. Well, that just sounds like I need a shower, right? But in context, remember when we come to the Bible, I like what Mike Winger has to say. He says, we come to the Bible, we're the weird ones, right? Because we're the ones outside of the culture. And so it's this idea of when Aaron was anointed for ministry, and this oil symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. And also you live in a dry and arid land, this, this oil is, is refreshment. That's the idea here. And then obviously we can, we can put the pieces together with verse 13 about the dew coming down and, and being able to uh, refresh the plants and to, to give them the moisture that they need. We can see that. But here's what I want to go with verses 1 through 3 here, with, with Psalm 133. Um, is that it's beautiful for Christians to have unity but I want you to remember that unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. Okay, uniformity, when I think of uniformity, I think about things like, you know, like the, the Nazis or the communists. Everybody has to think the same, look the same, say the same. That is not what we see in the scriptures. Paul says, you guys are all members individually and you're part of one body, but you're different. Some of you, you know, your finger or toe or you're this or you're that, 
but, but we're not all the same. So there's something famous that's attributed to Augustine, and, and maybe he said it, maybe he didn't, but it says this, on essentials, unity, on non-essentials, liberty, and everything, charity. So that's what we want to do. It's that things that are essential, we want to be like, you know, unified. Things that are non-essentials, okay, we're going to give liberty. I'm going to agree to disagree with you about that. And then on, but everything, how we treat people is we treat them in love. And so let's examine this topic a little bit more. Would you turn to the New Testament to the Gospel of John, John 17? We'll look at verses 20 through 23. Again, this is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And so here he's praying for all believers. John 17, verses 20 through 23, says, I do not pray for these alone, speaking of the twelve, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Well, guess what? That's you and me. So we're in verse 20. We're people who have believed through the words of the disciples that have been passed down to us. So Jesus was praying for us on that night. Notice that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. So it's beautiful, and you can go back on your own and study this, but Really what I see here is that Jesus wants that unity. Okay, he wants us to be unified, but again, that doesn't mean uniformity. So, so let me expand on this for just a second. We are not going to agree on everything. We're not going to agree. If, if we sat down and we started working through the Bible together, we would disagree. It's been well said, um, you know, two cannot agree on everything unless one is not thinking. Okay, that's just how it is. And so the fact, though, that you graciously can come in here and, and sit together and listen to what the, the word of God says and listen to how God might speak through me, even though we have different ideas about a lot of things, speaks of the fact that you can have unity, right? This is unity here, but it's certainly not uniformity. And, and so I, I love the way that Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter four, verse three, I'll read it for you. He says, endeavoring, means really working hard, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so that's a beautiful thing because I have a lot of believers in my life that I love dearly that we disagree on some ways to interpret pieces of Scripture. But I'm still good friends with them because I can say, I see it this way, you see it that way. It's not an essential, so you know what? We're not going to fight about this. Because the higher principle is I'm to love God and I'm to love others. I'm to think the best of other people. I'm to treat them well. So, so really, true unity, please hear me, true unity is coming into conformity with the revealed world, will of God. That's really what we want. So I've often heard it said, it's, it's like, um, you know, you think about the hub of a, a bicycle and all the spokes coming out. That is, if we're on one of those spokes, the closer we get to the will of God, the closer we'll get to each other right? The more unified we become. And so as we're all aiming toward the will of God, then what's going to happen is we'll, we'll have closer fellowship with one another. Now, it is not, unity is not trying to get you to do things my way or you trying to get me to do things your way. It's each of us seeking to do things God's way, 
right? And so if you came to me and you disagreed with me about something and you say, Steve, I think that you're misinterpreting it. I really think this is what God is saying. And so that, then I'm going to listen. But if you say, Steve, I believe this and you need to come over to my side because I believe it. I say, well, my job is not to get on your side. My job is to get on God's side. That, that's my desire. So let's stop trying to get each other to see things through our eyes and said, you know what, I'm just going to try to, to see things through God's eyes. I want to see it God's way. And so I, I strongly, um, you know, like I said earlier, I strongly degree, disagree with certain believers regarding various doctrines, but I can still have unity with them. Some of my f- favorite, you know, you guys know if you had a dollar for every time I mentioned C.S. Lewis. I strongly, strongly disagree with some of C.S. Lewis' takes. I think he was completely wrong in some areas. But I see he's a guy who God loved and who loved God and he's blessed my life. And, and so that's really, really important because if you, can, if you can be a believer who can be unified with other believers while disagreeing with them, that's something special. Because we live in a world that says you're either for me or you're against me. But they don't say it in the Jesus way. They say it in the way of if I'm going to cut you off if you disagree with me. And that's just not how we're to live. All right, final psalm we'll look at this morning. If you turn back to the psalms, we'll look at Psalm 134. We'll see if we have a Christmas miracle and I finish early. All right, (laughs) Psalm 134. Now, this is an interesting one. It's believed by commentators that this one's actually sung to the Levites at the temple. That the, the, the people, the pilgrims, would actually sing this to the Levites as they served in the temple. And that's kind of a cool thing to think about. So Psalm 134, verse 1. Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. So as the Levites were doing their job there, then these, these pilgrims singing to them, I think is a cool picture. It's an awesome thing. What we have to understand is certain Levites, they actually lived at the temple. They lodged at the temple, and at night they burned incense, they gave thanks, and they praised the Lord. So they had jobs to do there in the temple, so they actually lived there. And, and so this is cool that all through the night they're serving God. Why? Because the God of Israel, we're, t- we're told, he neither sleeps nor slumbers. And so since he never sleeps nor slumbers, it's good that he's always worshipped. And I was, I was thinking about this as interesting, that all around the world, you know, it's different times of day. And so when we're sleeping and not praising the Lord, there are believers on the other side of the planet who are awake and they're praising the Lord. So at all times of day, somebody's worshiping the Lord. And then we know that there are always people, right, that have gone on to be with the Lord in heaven and there are angels there in heaven worshiping God. So what, what I kind of take from this, any time is a good time to worship the Lord. Why not join in with the believers and angels who are worshiping the Lord all times of day? Well, let's just go ahead and do that too. Verse 2 says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. So again, this is praying toward the Levites, or, or I would say singing toward the Levites, telling them to lift up their hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The people are encouraging the Levites to praise the Lord. So the application for you and I, it's good to encourage each other to praise the Lord. Hey, praise the Lord. You know, and so sometimes though, we could say that, um, we just say praise the Lord, but it's just kind of a common saying. Or even we use it to mean the opposite of what it is. Someone gets a new car for free and we're like, well, praise the Lord. (laughs) Wow, good for you, right? And so, uh, we fail to rejoice with those who rejoice. So, but exhorting each other to praise the Lord is a wonderful thing. But here's, here's something even better. 
It's good to tell people to praise the Lord or exhort them, encourage them to praise the Lord. What's even better is you just do it. As you praise the Lord, then hopefully that will draw, magnetize, bring other people in. All right, verse three says, the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. And so uh, commentators think that maybe verse three is actually the response. So verses one and two are the pilgrims, the people saying this to the Levites. And then verse three is the response, the Levites saying it back to the people. And I just, this picture I love. I think it's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. And so the Levites saying to them, the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion asking the creator God to bless these pilgrims as they worship the Lord. Wonderful stuff. And so we'll, we'll stop here today. Let me conclude. It is gonna be a miracle. It's like five minutes early. Look at this. Number one, three reminders. Number one, an encouragement. Seek to be a wonderful dwelling place of God, a temple that he enjoys inhabiting. Open the doors wide, Go ahead and, and, and clean out the things that need to be cleaned out. Ask God to, hey, remove these things that need to be removed so that you might enjoy that wonderful intimacy that God wants to have with you. Second thing, let's seek unity but not uniformity. Let, let's seek to be unified as much as possible to live peaceably with fellow believers without compromising our convictions. So unity but not uniformity. And thirdly and finally, Remember that as a believer, your life is a song of ascent. That, that God is taking you onwards and upwards, further up and further in. And so I'm gonna close with these three verses from Jesus, from John 14, verses one through three. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Let's pray.